This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity Mind. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for today's episode. We've got a returning guest, a returning favorite uh, from JP Morgan Asset Management. That's it. It is our pleasure to welcome Kerry Craig back to the studio. Kerry, welcome. Thanks, Jens. Uh, it's great to be here and uh, to have done a good enough job to be invited back. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, Kerry is a global market strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management. At JP Morgan Asset Management, he is responsible for offering thought leadership and explaining market data and trends to wholesale and institutional clients, investors, and the broader investing community. Thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for sponsoring this episode. And we have so much to get through today. There's so much going on at a macro level. We cannot wait to get stuck in. So let's do it, Ren. Yeah, Carrie. And we're uh, calling this episode Winter is Coming. And uh, I guess that's both literally in the Northern Hemisphere, Winter is Coming, <laughs> but also metaphorically, uh, like the Game of Thrones um, inspiration, it, it is feels like there's some tough times ahead. And so that's what we're going to unpack today. But before we do, for people who haven't listened to our last interview with you, can you just remind us what you do at JP Morgan Asset Management? Uh, sure. So my job, if I like, boil it down, is just to provide clarity around what's happening at market level uh, and to, honestly, in times like these, to, to think about what really matters for investors uh, because there is so much uncertainty. We try to, to dull that down and, and cut through a lot of that. Uh, we tend to lean on this phrase, uh, putting the pieces of the puzzle together so you can see the big picture. And that's really what it feels like at the moment. There is so many pieces going on that sometimes the picture of what you're actually trying to achieve investing can get lost. Mm. So just about providing clarity around the markets and I guess not necessarily reassuring people, but having them a better understanding that can help them make their own investment decisions. Mm. Well, the macro picture can sort of feel a little bit bleak at the moment. And in preparing for this uh, interview, you mentioned there's sort of big, three big themes that we should be aware of as global investors. There was the, there's the energy crisis, possibility of uh, a European recession, and then the forecasts uh, for the US Federal Reserve. And we're going to go through each of those today. So let's start with the energy crisis. To kick it off, are you able to just summarise where, where we're at? 
Actually, when we look at the energy crisis, I mean, we, we're focusing on Europe, right? Because we're thinking about uh, the impact of the Ukrainian war, what it's done to, to gas prices, the flow-on effect to oil prices. And uh, in the last few weeks, that's changed, right? Oil prices have come down meaningfully. Uh, gas prices also come down. And then you've obviously had this flare-up uh, based on some alleged sabotage around the, the pipelines and the gas prices going higher. Um, and it is very methodical to think about winter is coming because as Europe heads into that northern winter, it's all about how cold that winter is going to be, what other actions Russia might take to cut off gas, and how much gas that Europe really has stockpiled so far. And what's been remarkable is they've done a great job of stockpiling gas. They have a target of filling up 85% of their capacity, and they're pretty much on track to do that by the end of this year. Um, and that does leave them in a pretty good position to think about uh, drawing down those stockpiles throughout the winter. The question becomes, if it's a very severe winter, those stockpiles are going to come down faster. And then once they have run down and you're thinking about the spring in the Northern Hemisphere, how do they rebuild those? How are they going to go through either having voluntary cutbacks to people using gas and manufacturing, or are they going to have to have them enforced? And quite frankly, if you have enforced ones, companies aren't making things, you can't sell anything, and that dampens your economy. So all that does add up to a recession in Europe, but a relatively mild one. And I'd say that because you've seen this huge, well, not huge, but significant increase in fiscal support from governments at both the national and, and supranational level coming through. Uh, but those numbers are sort of anywhere between 3 and 6% of GDP if you look across different countries. And you compare that to the response during COVID, and that fiscal response was between 10 and 20% across different countries. So some way to go to offset that in terms of the complete impact it would have on the economy. But we do think of it as a cushion, so softening that blow to the economy getting up in a recession, it's probably going to be a little bit milder than we had thought because of that fiscal response, but it so much does depend on that fiscal response, and there is still this huge uncertainty around what Russia's going to do and potential further cutoff of gas supply. So coming out the other side is just as important. A lot of people see the news uh, about the potential European energy crisis, about the potential alleged sabotage of Nord Stream 1 and 2. But uh, at JP Morgan Asset Management, a lot of what you do uh, is take the, the news and then translate it to what it could mean for investors or for different asset classes around the world. And we've, we've sort of seen some of uh, what this energy crisis has done, I guess like the first order effects. We've seen higher energy prices for consumers. We've seen, you know, the UK cap energy price rises to sort of protect consumers in some ways. We've seen trouble for energy utilities. Uh, Uniper in Germany got nationalised and, and there's a bit of, of trouble in that sector. But I guess beyond that, what are some of the effects that we should expect to see as investors? I think the biggest one is that a lot of that pricing is going to start to wash out when it comes to in terms of inflation, which is probably going to be the most important. So when we think about the impact on headline rates of inflation, our expectation is those start to come down as those energy prices on a year-on-year -year basis look better in 2023. Uh, the impact on the economies in terms of what's happening in Europe is very much one where you're going to see that recession. It's going to be difficult for top-line revenues to be growing. Uh, it doesn't really make us very... Uh, attractive or very appealing to want to own European assets in this environment because it just looks like earnings are going to be further downgraded. It is cheap when you look at the prices of equities in Europe and relative to the US and other parts of the world, they do look attractive. Uh, but it comes back to this question, are they cheap enough? Uh, and they probably aren't given that uncertainty that's overweight uh, and overhanging the European economy. So it keeps us very cautious on thinking about European assets in this environment. Um, and it also means that we do have this inflation that is going to fall over the course of next year, but we do know it's going to rise in the near term. Uh, and we've seen that from uh, actions from the European Central Bank, the Bank of England. They're going to continue to hike rates in this 
business environment. So we think those bond yields in Europe uh, have probably got a little bit more to go. And again, is why we wouldn't think about owning uh, a lot of European uh, debt in this environment. Mm. Now, you mentioned uh, oil, and we've seen it come down from highs of, what, near 135 or thereabouts a barrel or 130 or, or whatever, and it's sitting at about, what, 80, 80 a barrel now? Yeah. There, and uh, OPEC is, what, now saying that they're going to be cutting supply given how cheap, uh, cheap it is. What, where do you see oil going from here? And uh, yeah, well, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's, it was it got down to the, sort of the, the the Brent oil price, like that's the the benchmark for Europe and the world, not the WTI one, which is just the US. Uh, it got down to about eighty four. It's actually popped up today to around ninety, and I think there's actually more support from that. So if we think about uh, what drives oil price, you've got supply and demand. Obviously, think about uh, our winter coming and the weakness in demand as the global economy becomes much more sluggish and you have these recessions. Demand falls, that should draw down energy prices. The flip side of this is that you do have a case where we're thinking about those uh, OPEC plus companies, countries, excuse me, saying that they're going to want to increase the price of oil to $100 a barrel because that's what they want to see it at. Uh, you've still got a risk that Russia could do more actions given the sanctions that are being placed on them. You know, the theory is that they wouldn't turn off their oil production because it's too costly to restart it, but they could. You, you never know. Uh, that would have a big impact. Uh, and then you've also got these sanctions that have been put in place on Russia throughout the year, not fully coming into effect until December. So they're still washing through. And again, this is all going to sort of constrain supply. There's been no deal with Iran. You've got um, a terrifying hurricane hitting Florida, yeah. which could possibly yeah. disrupt refining capacity in the US. You know, all these things are going to be impacting the supply side, just as we think about demand weakening. And that's going to create somewhat of a floor to the oil price. It's not going to see it surge back up. You know, we don't think it's going to go back up to $127 a barrel, but it's likely to keep it supported. And actually, that's going to be quite good if we think about how well energy stocks have actually been performing. Yeah, I mean, quite good for energy stocks. The super normal profits of the, you know, the energy majors has been something to behold this year. It's been nice to see petrol prices come down a little bit. Um, but I guess, yeah, the question is, you know, if India and China keep buying Russian oil, that's one thing. If they stop, then they have to buy oil elsewhere. We've talked about natural gas. We've talked about oil. Probably one of the hottest energy topics, thematics, in the equity mates community is nuclear. And there's a lot of talk about nuclear, first of all, because of the European energy crisis, but also because of the broader climate change and net zero debate. Do you think this European energy crisis changes the, uh, I guess, the, f the future of nuclear in any way? I think it has uh, reopened that debate about whether we can say it's, it's green and sustainable uh, and it fits into this, not necessarily renewable, but something that's not creating as many carbon emissions as burning fossil fuels. Um, and it could be used, given that there is already uh, some capacity to generate nuclear energy in parts of the world, to, to, to create a stopgap until you actually meet those renewable energy targets in terms of the amount of time it takes to build all this infrastructure. I think when it comes back to many investors, they have to make their own decision about whether they decide and think that nuclear is actually fitting their environmental standards when they think about ESG investing. It's really, I think, a personal choice or a choice of an institution um, rather than one that should be forced on you by simply a government saying we're counting nuclear as green. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest impacts as we see investors rotate towards a lot of that sustainability. The flip side to that is that given how markets have been performing this year and that you know investors have felt a lot of pain in their portfolios, you know, equities going down, bonds going down, um, often in times like that, it's more about fixing your portfolio before fixing the world. So I think the focus can change a little bit in the short term as well. Do you think there's anything that the market is getting wrong or thinking incorrectly about 
what's going on in energy at the moment. I think the thing that got wrong was that you were just going to have this shift to renewables and, and, and realise there had been this huge underinvestment in fossil fuels and just ignoring how dependent the world still is mm. on fossil fuels. Just, I guess, underestimating the amount of time it takes to actually change and shift from a, an economy that runs on fossil fuels to one that's actually going to run on minerals, right? Mm. We think about all the inputs to you know batteries for electric cars or electrification of industries. That's really what's already been underappreciated. And I think that's going to fuel that next shift if we think about, you know, where do you actually access those materials? What countries of the world are going to be important? I mean, there was this article today in the AFR about Indonesia and the fact that it has tons of nickel. You know, it's going to shift a lot in terms of thinking about global supply chains, which countries are important as countries and economies think more about uh, food security and energy security. Mm. And I think mm. those are going to be big shifts that play out in the next few years. And again, I think that coming back to what people got wrong, it's probably just the length of time it's going to take to see that adjustment. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's been no clearer than in Australia. Now, uh, for ESG reasons, I have never really thought about investing in coal, but a lot of people thought, you know, the days of coal were... It's not clean coal, it's clean coal here. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like the, there was talk with the last government about subsidising coal plants and all of that stuff um, because they, they needed to remain competitive. Um, we had a look at some data from the ASX, uh, like the biggest uh, sort of 200, 300 companies, and four of the best five performers this year, year to date, coal companies. It's just like that's something the rest of the market got wrong, the future of coal. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of company countries around Asia are still reliant on coal. They've built newer coal plants in the last decades, which are actually more efficient than I mean, the old ones in, in developed markets. And so they still have this huge reliance on coal that's going to remain. And again, it's going to be that that shift towards renewables. It takes a lot longer to come through. Even if the desire is there, it's just the process of the fact that you need that much investment and it takes that much time to build the infrastructure. Mm. Mm. The big headline today was that Queensland's building the world's largest pumped hydro scheme, like $65 billion or something, and they, won't, they, they forecast they won't need coal 2035 and onwards, which is exciting. Yeah, those, those are aspirational dates for a lot of these yeah. things. <laughs> and, and I hope it is the case, but it does seem like a long way away right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the flow on conversation from energy really becomes... Uh, the possibility of a European recession because winter is coming both literally and metaphorically and if it's a cold winter and energy stockpiles go down, energy prices go up, businesses and consumers feel the pinch. At JP Morgan Asset Management, how what is, what's your weighting of probabilities? How much how likely do you think it is? And I guess oh, a recession in Europe, yeah, uh, it's almost guaranteed. It's about how deep it is. There we go. Well, nice. yeah. I guess let's change the question. <laughs> how bad is it going to get? And how worried should we, sitting on the other side of the world, be? Uh, I don't think we need to be that worried. I mean, it's a it's something we've often thought about as being a regional effect. Like the energy crisis in Europe is affecting Europe. Uh, perversely, Australia's benefited from some extent given our export of energy. Um, and the impact around Asia has been relatively muted. Obviously, as Europe has sucked in more natural gas from the rest of the world, um, it means it takes it away from places like Asia. They're feeling it a little bit more in terms of they have to either pay higher prices or shift to other sources of energy. You get that switching between gas and oil, for example. But it is relatively a, a European problem. Uh, the US insulated its, its self-sufficient energy largely. Um, you, uh, here in Australia, we're not seeing the, the negative benefits that helped our term, in terms of trade. We talked about 
the cold companies there. Mm. Um, so I think it is relatively a, a, an issue for Europe. The where it becomes a bigger issue and where you could see it becoming more important is the sentiment effect. So if we think about the UK, which is probably heading for a recession as well, Europe heading for a recession, the US is a bit touch and go at the moment, China slowing down. Suddenly you're thinking about, are we heading for a global recession? And that's really going to impact sentiment and attitudes towards risk assets at a time where you've seen markets be very weak already. Mm. So for someone who's just tuning in for the first time or has come up from a submarine from a nine-month expedition, has no idea what's going on, is the energy crisis the uh, the only thing that is driving us or Europe towards a recession or what other factors are, are at play that we should be aware of that are contributing to this this sentiment? Actually, what's been, well, yeah, if you look at consumer sentiment in Europe, it's, it's, it's plumbing uh, record lows as it would be when, you, when you're facing these kind of crises. But what's been more remarkable is that consumers have still been spending. You've actually had a lot of resilience in the economy. Data hasn't nearly been as weak as we'd expected it to. <clears throat> and you've had uh, quite a shift in terms of how governments are approaching it, being really willing to act and try and offset that. Uh, so you haven't had this idea that, you know, austerity was the thing that central uh, that governments in Europe wanted to provide. You've got uh, a better starting point from not necessarily a fiscal union in, in Europe, but you've had definitely an idea that com- countries are acting more in unison around approaching that common problem where go back to the debt crisis it was always about you know us and them between some of the smaller economies or um, say Italy and, and the southern economies uh, and the other ones like Germany where it's much more unified now I just had a follow-on for for the spending piece because it feels like it, it's sort of similar here in Australia that you know discretionary spending is probably still pretty high I, I imagine um, it just feels that way. What, what do you what, see? You, as you've been buying, you've been buying lots of unnecessary things, have you? <laughs> just been running out and buying. Well, I mean, stuff you look at need. you look at the results. <laughs> you look at the results from a lot of the retailers around the world in the most recent earnings, anyway. And it wasn't it wasn't dire. I mean, they were probably sort of forecasting that the next earnings season is going to be a little little bit worse. But um, what, what's your sort of timeline for the flow and effect of all these interest rate rises like it, it feels like it hasn't quite had the impact on consumer spending that it otherwise might have had it hasn't and uh, even the retail sales came out for australia uh you know for august uh, were actually a bit better than expected uh and i think that's a lag effect coming through you know consumers are relatively cashed up you had stimulus and money transfers from governments to people during covid they're still being well down wound down Australian savings rate, uh, you know, um, basically cash compared to disposable income, uh, is still above average, so it still has scope to come down. It's it's come down in the US a lot more, but they still have more cash to spend. So a lot of that is the reason why you've seen consumers willing to spend. And then you can look back and say, well, there's been the opening, people are catching up on all the spending they didn't do, and you've sort of seen a surge in travel and all that kind of stuff. So that's definitely been the case. It is going to start to change from here now, though. I think that there is the, the ramifications that a lot of those interest rate rises, which do act the lag on their economy do affect how people um, spend given that you know they refinance their mortgages and it hits them later on that is going to start to create a drag so we wouldn't think about that uh, pace of spending to be maintained and also when you look at those numbers you got to remember uh, they're not just volumes they're prices so they are seeing that the fact that prices are rising mm. is capturing a bit of that as well not just the absolute volumes of what people are actually spending um, so we would think about that coming down the flip side of that and you mentioned corporate earnings um, is that companies have shifted from this idea of having just-in-time inventory systems to just in case, right? So they have huge stockpiles of inventories. They have to get rid of them. I think that's going to be something to watch out for in terms of the upcoming earnings season from a lot of those companies in the US around inventory levels. Are they going to start slashing prices to try and clear them? Uh, Again, would that be a disinflationary impulse potentially? Uh, But I think that that 
weight around uh, consumers and what they expect them to do and that forecast will be very important when we think about the upcoming earnings season and how that may feed into analyst expectations which mm. look a little bit high when we mm. think about consensus for, for earnings around right. the world. Okay, Heading back to Europe uh, and the European recession, um, we speak about Europe as a block these days but it still is multiple different countries with multiple different economies and uh, uh, previously you mentioned Italy and they're obviously in the news because of a new government um, but also a slow moving debt crisis, I think $2.7 trillion in debt, 150% of GDP, uh, Mario Draghi couldn't sort it out and he was the former chair of the European Central Bank. I guess, how do you think about the Italian debt crisis and what that could mean for the rest of Europe? Uh, well, I think the, the debt crisis in Europe is probably not the issue right now. The, the change in government and the shift to the, the right is probably uh, a little bit more worrying. I, I think that the whole debt crisis thing has become less of an issue more broadly because you have had that shift towards, again, uh, more of a fiscal, not, again, it's not a fiscal union, but more of an understanding of the fiscal ramifications of the blocks working together. I think what we can say as we look at the UK and what's happened is that in the last two years, everyone has been very happy when governments are willing to spend. You know, rack up debt, fine. Get us out of this hole we've been in, great. Uh, a lot of that supported markets during that period. Uh, and there was the idea that, you know, governments could spend more freely because interest rates were low. What we've seen out of the UK is that when you're ramping up your debt and it's unfunded by tax and it's just funded by issuing more debt, uh, sorry, ramping up fiscal stimulus, which is just ramped up by more debt, uh, the markets are now looking at it and saying, well, really, is that sustainable when interest rates are going up? And so that's what's changing. I think that that idea that governments could just spend free freely and that central banks would always be there with low interest rates and that's put pressure on the pound uh, and the crisis in Europe with energy is more weighing on the euro and the recession rating on the euro but you know that's where that infection could come through if uh, markets become a little more uncomfortable with those debt levels and say hey actually we don't think this is very good when interest rates are going up and when it comes to say uh, looking at Italy it's all about how much those spreads on debt widen compared to the power, uh, the Bund and we see those come through and then if they did get too wide there would be some expectation the ECB would step in with some sort of measure as they have hinted at in the past but never actually had to use. How wide those spreads have to become no one really knows and it's more likely the ECB would start talking about it before they actually did anything so uh, there are those backstops there to prevent that crisis uh, occurring again. Okay, well, that's a that's a glimmer of hope. Things <laughs> are, are one uh, point where things may not be as bad as uh, as it may first appear. I guess let's let's grab onto this slither of hope and uh, and talk about any positive stories coming out of Europe. Um, you know, we mentioned it's multiple different economies uh, making up the one big European economy. Are there any countries that are looking really positive or uh, that are, you know, beating expectations or surprising despite the challenges that Europe are facing? Not really, to be honest. Okay. It's like, <laughs> I'm pretty happy I don't live in England anymore right now, to be honest. Um, it, it's, it's not, a, it's, it sounds like, I think if I could summarise it and just say, it's not as bad as everyone else makes out. There is this sort of uh, idea that fiscal support, the fact that the economy has been a bit resilient, just means that that recession that they are going to have is not going to be as bad. And it's because it's coming back down to the recession has been caused by too much inflation. It's going to be a policy-induced recession by interest rates going up. And we have this very unfortunate situation with um, the energy crisis as well. Um, and again, it, it does come back to that fiscal support and how much can come through uh, and how much it actually does filter through to the real economy. 
Uh, we do think, you know, in our forecast, it's going to be a relatively short few quarters of recession and not nearly as bad as like COVID or the GFC, mm. which is what everyone sort of leans towards. Um, and again, because there's not those massive um, underlying imbalances in the economy that we may have seen in the past, for example, the banking sector is in a much better place than it has been in prior years. Uh, that allows us to think about the improvements you could see on the other side of the uh, economy when it starts to come out and a better functioning financial system, better flowing of credit obviously helps markets get back up, helps the economy get back on its feet. So Kerry, the pound is getting crunched and the US dollar is on an absolute tear. Um, for new investors just joining the Equity Mates community, should we care? Is it something that matters for us sitting here in Australia? Um, probably the pound less, uh, the US dollar massively. All right, that's the, the world's reserve currency and where it's heading is it infecting everywhere else in the world uh, through multiple channels. Uh, so the first is that as the US dollar gets higher, it means that every other country is getting weaker and currency is getting weaker. Uh, that means the input costs are higher, that feeds into inflation. At the time, the US is benefiting from disinflation because their inputs are cheaper. Uh, that's the first channel. It's impacting earnings in the US. You know, you've got 60% of uh, earnings in the US uh, from foreign sources. Mm. Stronger dollar weakens their earnings, so you can think about the weight applies on the equity market, and then the pressure it's applying, like the euro and the UK, and making and the emerging markets, and thinking about um, the negative impact it has there is, is is a problem. There's been lots of talk in the last day or two around, oh, you're going to see intervention, you're going to see a plaza record kind of situation. No. I mean, the Fed wants the dollar strong to bring inflation down. They're not going to stop hiking rates until they really have control of that inflation. It's about how many other central banks around the world become more aggressive in their rate hikes or about how much growth actually looks better around the world compared to the Europe uh, to the US because you have this dollar smile that you may have heard of. So the dollar smile suggests yeah. that, you know, uh, when the economy around the world looks bad. When you think about recession, everyone heads of the safety of US assets. So you think about buying bonds, you think about buying the safety of the US dollar. And so the currency rises in times of, of, of really weakness. And then on the flip side, uh, when everything's looking really good, money flows back to the US because equity markets are going up and you want to own uh, the world's largest economy where everything's booming. And it's actually in the middle when you have mediocre growth in the US, when you have interest rates that are roughly the same as the rest of the world and the rest of the world is growing, that you're thinking more around diversifying around the world world and right. so you're in the middle smile, so, the smile. Yeah, so we're yeah. at that that sort of right hand side of the dollar smile if you want to put it that way okay. in terms of everyone's flying to the safety of the US dollar that's what's really underpinning it at a time where you have interest rates moving higher as well so we see little to get in the way of that dollar smile and to get in the way of that dollar strength at the moment the Aussie dollar is like down about 10% year to date what I would say is that Everyone asks me this, like, oh, the dollar's gone down versus the US dollar. The dollar's gone down versus the US dollar. What's important for the Australian economy is the trade-weighted index, yeah. like who we actually trade mm. with. The trade-weighted index of the Aussie dollar is up about 2% this year because we've been selling tons of energy to the rest of the world, mainly into Asia and China, uh, and that's actually been quite good for our economy. So just avoid the trap of thinking about that one currency. Think about the trade-weighted basket for, for the impact in the Australian economy. Mm. Yeah, great. It's a very long-winded answer, I'm no, sorry. No, it's good. <laughs> so the short answer is yes, we should care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I know um, you, you're looking more macro than at individual stocks, but, but one thing that just has fascinated me uh, around the conversation of the strong US dollar and the, the weak pound, obviously everyone's looking at, you know, the the US stocks who are now going to be uh, have potentially have a revenue impact because of how strong the US dollar is when they're get bringing revenue in from overseas. But the weak British pound feels like a real opportunity for some of those big British stocks because they're massive exporters. Mm. Like Diageo, the alcohol uh, brand, 
only 20% of their sales are in Europe and the UK. Yeah. And so, so they're, they're going to be... percent of the revenues of the, uh, the um, FTSE come from outside. There you go. Yeah. And so they're going to be booking, you know, US dollars, Aussie dollars, and then reporting it in pounds. Surely they're going to be laughing next reporting yeah, season. Yeah, and they have seen the, the, the FTSE a little bit better than expected because of that. But the makeup of their market is, is kind of similar to, to Australia. So you've got a lot of resources, you've got a lot of um, financials in there as well. Mm-hmm. So from a diversification benefit, if you're an Australian investor, do you want to buy more of the yeah. same you have in your home? <laughs> market um, and also you got to think about how much of those revenues are actually generated in Europe uh, whereas heading for yeah, a session yeah. that weakness so uh, those are the colliery factors you could say that same thing about Japan obviously the yen has been very weak again a cyclical market we have a lot of offshore revenues um, and it's one area you might say well I love I hate Japan it's been on and off for years those are supports for thinking about why you know the topics or um, the Japanese equity market might do better than other markets around the world because of that weakness in the yen. Um, you'd have to offset that with, again, a cyclical market that might slow as the global economy slows, but the weakness in the currency is, is a support for thinking about the benefit of the, the equity market and those offshore earnings. So, Kerry, we've covered energy crisis. We've covered possibility of a European recession. Well, not possibility, but how deep a European, <laughs> European recession. So let's head over across the Atlantic and turn to the US because everyone is watching the Fed and we'd love to know what JP Morgan's asset management's view is on the Fed. Where do they go next? Um, I mean, this is the longest I've sat in a room with someone without the Fed being the first thing that's mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) So it's inflation and the Fed, uh, obviously since Jackson Hole meeting in August, it's kind of spooked the markets. They came out and said, we're just committed to getting inflation under control. Uh, You could use that as as a code for saying, we're trying to regain our credibility after getting inflation wrong for so long. Um, But many central banks did that. Uh, And so it is a case of the Fed moving higher. You know, they're up their interest rates, 75 basis points. It's sitting at this three to three and a quarter band now. probably going to do another 100, 125 basis points by the start of next year, push that interest rate to around about 4.5%. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why we think it's going to go that way. Uh, what the Fed has said is they're not really going to stop hiking interest rates until they get the yield curve back into positive real territory. So we think about nominal yields adjusted for inflation. So as inflation comes down, uh, we do think about that being a positive, but it does mean that if the rates have to be above that level of inflation still. Right now, you know, three, three and a quarter, still well below inflation. Inflation, so they've got some way to go. Um, and their preferred measure of inflation is something called the core personal consumption expenditure index. It's just a different measure of inflation that they focus on. Um, currently running at 4.6% year on year, right? So okay. uh, they are at three and a quarter. So they have to get that up. If that PCE number starts to come down to say three and a half or you know three by the end of next year, uh, they do have to get above that. And they've never stopped hiking rates when those real yields have been negative. So right. they've got some way to go. And I think that's an important thing to watch at. I mean, it's it's good that it's 4% because I was thinking, you know, infl- like the headline inflation is 8.3% and to, yeah. to get mean, higher than that would be... Yeah, our expectation is that those headline numbers are going to come back down to those 2 3% levels in most economies around the world by the end of next year because of the impact of food prices coming down, energy mm. prices coming down, the flow and effects to other parts of the inflation basket. Core goods, um, you know, the things that apparently everyone's stopped by except you running out and buying everything um, you know they're coming down and uh, that will weigh on inflation but it's things like you know labor markets are really tight you've got a lot of wage negotiations going on and, and wage uh, 
are going up year on year. Housing is very important in the US given the rents are a big part mm-hmm. of the inflation cycle. We've got those sticky parts of inflation, uh, which are going to be more important for things when you think about the core level of inflation outside of headline. Um, and that's why there's always an upside risk to the, the Fed or the RBA or anyone else doing more because those core levels, that measure of underlying inflation in the economy is not really going away. For us, though, those headline inflation coming down is what's really probably more important. The fact that we are thinking about doesn't cost so much to fill my car with gas. I'm not spending so much mm. at the supermarket. You know, maybe some of those inventories that companies are trying to get rid of mean that things we buy are a little bit cheaper. Um, and that can actually lessen that drag on terms of that consumer spending. But for us, the Fed, they're going to go until they get those real yields back into positive territory, until there's a clear sign that inflation's coming down. And that does mean it's going to be a very much data-dependent story in terms of watching the inflation prints that come out every month, watching the labour market prints that come out every month, seeing if there's that weakness there that would suggest wage growth starts to um, slow down or, or reverse a little bit. Uh, and, and that's where we're at. It's unfortunately going to still be a very choppy and volatile outlook when it comes to central banks. Yeah, because I, I was going to ask you to sort of square the two narratives that you're hearing. One, that all these commodity prices are, are, are falling, you know, like lumber is down 70%, oil is off 40%, like all, all these raw commodities are down. But we're also hearing people say the Fed and other central banks are going to raise, keep raising rates and be higher for longer. But I think you've explained it there with the labour market and the housing market being two key drivers. Is there anything else is, is, or is it just those two markets? In the US, it's definitely... So- Shelter costs, which are rent and, and things related to the housing markets, thirty percent of the inflation basket. So it's a big chunk, right? Yeah, okay. uh, and then everything else, because the US is such a services-based economy, comes back to how much you're paying your workers. And you have seen, you know, companies that have a lot of workers, tech companies and stuff like that, they're actually starting to retrench and you know lay off workers because you know it costs too much to hold them now. Um, but more broadly, you've got a very tight labour market in the US. Uh, there's two jobs for every unemployed person at the moment. Um, the participation rate is very low. And that's troubling. You think about where you're going to get more workers from. So the prime age working group, those of us 25 to, to 55, go out and, uh, you know, create a sweat, making making money every day. They've come back. You know, they're working at, like, those peak levels that were prior to COVID. And then everyone at the age of 55 is either taking early retirement or maybe during for COVID reasons doesn't come back. And that's where you've seen the workforce drop. So it's how you replace those workers when you've effectively closed your borders to immigration, yeah, uh, you've yeah. got an aging population anyway. So, you know, that's that's the challenge. The thing about how do I actually get um, that participation rate up, that unemployment rate higher, uh, and that wage growth grower, lower. Uh, and the way you do that is by creating a recession or at least really slowing the economy as far down as you can without creating a recession is the hope of the Fed. Employment, you, you hear a lot of the conversation around immigration, as you've just said, and you know, hopefully as borders start to reopen and uh, immigration starts to normalise, you see uh, more workers and, and some of that heat in the employment market comes out. When it comes to housing, the conversation's a little bit more difficult. And uh, unlike in Australia, most mortgages in America are fixed. And so everyone who fixed their mortgage at the start of this year has like a 2 or 3% interest rate. And if they were to sell and buy another house, they would be getting a 7% interest rate now. And if the Fed keeps hiking it, it might even go higher than that, which feels like a structural problem for the US housing market. So how are you guys, if the, if housing is one of those key markets that we've got to watch, um, how are you guys seeing it at JP Morgan Asset Management? It is a, it's a structural problem. You've, you've hit it on the head there. And I imagine there's lots of smug people in, in the US who are like, I fixed my mortgage at 2%. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so just, but they can't move now. They're yeah. locked yeah. in. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. If, you, if you have more kids, there's they're no, sharing rooms because no, we're not moving. There's no flipping houses. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, you got to wonder about the transmission transmission of, of higher rates into the economy. Like so, in here, you know, it's a, a pure refix every two years. So you know, you, can get, you have that sort of lagged effect on the economy as rates go up. You're going to have to impact over there. It's not so much um, when we look at the housing market. You have seen activity slow, so housing starts are coming down. Kind of makes sense. Um, the problem is there that you have a structural impediment in terms of. There's just been a bigger population growth, more household formations, you know, people getting married, having families, um, than there has been in housing growth in terms of the actual stock of houses. So you've got more supply than you have demand. Um, as prices have gone up significantly when interest rates were really cheap in the US, house price affordability became very poor, so people were forced to rent. Uh, and so you've had a big growth in rent that's pushed up rental prices. People moving away from cities or relocating during COVID has also seen pockets of growth in different parts of America that again had that under sort of um, were understocked in housing that's created more renting pressure. Uh, and so that's not going to go away because you're right. If the interest rates are going up, maybe the house you would have sold or the house you would have bought to rent uh, as an investor, it's too expensive now. You're just going to stay where you are. Um, and therefore you, you're worried about that um, supply of housing to come through. So that's why rent becomes a much more slower moving part of the inflation basket. So we think about those things that can react very quickly to prices. So energy, obviously, uh, things like clothing, because you can have sales. Rents are a very slow moving part of the inflation basket. And that's why it takes a little bit longer for them to come down. That's why they're called stickier. And that's why it'll take longer for them to, to run off. Um, but we are seeing that slowing in the housing market. Prices are coming down. Uh, stocks are rising a little bit. And that has spooked people thinking around <gasps> subprime crisis. But, you know, lending is happening at higher rates. They have FICO scores in the US. Those FICO scores, the banks are lending to are higher. Um, we're actually not seeing any too, too many massive declines in prices and there's a very important indicator you can look at called months of supply uh, and typically when months of supply hits over six of new and existing houses that's when you see year-on-year -year prices start to move negative month supplies around about three at the moment uh, and so it's not really in those alarming territories so we don't have too much worry about the, the housing market in the u.s you're probably much more worried about the housing market in china at this point well what about the housing market in australia what's uh jp morgan asset management's view on the hottest asset class <laughs> domestically <laughs> well I'm sure that everyone else's price is falling except mine no uh, <laughs> unfortunately not uh, so yeah you can look at the cycles of, of housing through the last five years I mean uh, 2017 house prices fell uh 10, 11%. Uh, it's going to be worse than that. Um, I'm a great barometer of this because I bought my first house in 2017 when I moved to Australia <laughs> nice. at the peak and it fell. And we just bought a house earlier this year at the peak and now it's fallen. Uh, so I'm probably the worst person to ask uh, about Let the us know market. when you move again. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> When's the peak when I buy a house? Yeah. Um, but So it's going to fall more than that. I mean, it's going to come down between 15, maybe 20%. Uh, and it's going to seem painful to those prior uh, drawdowns we have seen. Um, but it's coming from very high prices is the first mm. starting point. Uh, and again, a lot of the lending that's happening by banks has been a higher quality. So again, again, it's going to create a drag on the economy in terms of the housing market activity. Uh, it could hit some of the banks in terms of their activity uh, for lending. But again, it's probably not going to be systemic in terms of worried about the more broader financial situation. Um, and, and the other thing is that you can look at these numbers that say, well, higher interest rates are a problem, but you know, there's huge amounts of money in offsets accounts and, and all these kind of things. The, what's really going to change the housing market is that all those prior cycles when the house prices have fallen, it doesn't start to turn until the RBA cuts rates. It doesn't really start to change until the RBA really starts to loosen up rates. And so there's no expectation of the RBA cutting rates next year. So we could be in this sort of prolonged downward cycle. 2017, it was uh, close to two years which house prices came down over. So we could be in this uh, sort of downward trend in houses for the next sort of 18, 24 
four months uh, again. But it depends. I mean, could fall into a massive recession. Uh, VA could cut rates. And we're all back on uh, buying houses for cheap. <laughs> Interesting. Well, love to hear that we've got some time on our side, Ren. We, we're not in the housing, we're not in the property market, no. but <laughs> maybe we're coming close. I don't know. <laughs> so, Kerry, winter is coming, literally and figuratively. There's a lot of reasons to be worried about there, but the job of an investor, be they a professional at JP Morgan Asset Management or a retail investor like Bryce and I, is to remain positive. Uh, you know, investing is literally deferring consumption today in the hope that you'll be able to consume more in the future uh, and look for opportunities. So uh, in this context where there's a lot of reasons that you could be worried um, where winter is coming, where are JP Morgan Asset Management seeing opportunities? I mean, it's it's a tough environment to say there's lots of positive opportunities out there. Um, but uh, for some reason, I was, uh, yeah, you heard of Foo Fighters? Yeah. So they've got a song called Times Like These. Times like I'm not going to sing it, but Times Like These, we learn to love again. So it's Times Like These, we learn to love the bond market a little bit more. Uh, and so it has been troubling given the most recent weeks when we've seen this massive surge in yields and prices fall. And you're thinking, well, I don't really want to own bonds because that would be a lot of capital loss. Prices are falling as yields rise. But when we look at the world, we think about um, companies' revenues being squeezed, input prices going up, earnings expectations being a little bit high, valuations falling on equities and not really providing a cushion to further earnings downgrades. Um, it does really keep us very much underweight on the equity market uh, in the short term. We wouldn't be thinking about huge potential there. What we do like a little bit more, obviously, is the bond market because you've had this huge run-up in yields and as the global economy falls uh, and as you think more around growth rather than inflation becoming the problem, it is going to mean that yields should fall and that you will see price rises in bonds and you better risk-adjuster returns from owning bonds in this environment. And that, again, feeds into this idea that if you're looking at your portfolio, you want to make sure you have adequate resilience to these shocks that are out there um, to wrap up well from that cold in the winter that's going to come. Um, and you want to make sure that you have a high quality in your portfolio. So that does mean thinking about investment grade credit, probably leaning away from the riskier parts of the credit market, such as high yield at the moment, because they're not really pricing in a recession that could come. Um, and thinking if you are in your equity portfolios, I mean, being underweight just means you don't own as many as you normally would, doesn't mean you don't own any. Um, uh, thinking about the quality of those earnings. There's been a big debate around, oh, doesn't growth stocks do really well when, you know, things are going down they have you know earnings that deliver problem is that those growth stocks are very sensitive to those bond yields and those yields have risen we've seen those growth stocks come down so it keeps us very neutral in thinking about growth versus uh, value and thinking much more about a quality bias and that applies across sectors one of the weirdest things at the moment is that as we're thinking about slowing growth, it's not been those defensive sectors that have been doing well. It's been the more cyclical ones like energy. So it's hard to say that things are behaving as they should in this environment. There's greater dispersion across stocks. So it's better to be a stock picker across the market rather than thinking out, I'm just going to own this one sector based on historical uh, movements and what I think is going to play out. So it is a case of being a, a little bit more... Uh, cautious or resilient in terms of how you approach the market at the moment, given there's a lot of uncertainty out there, given there's this idea that we are going to have very sluggish growth. We could see that recession in the US, um, that we could see um, central banks tighten interest rates much more. Um, and just to be patient, I think, in terms of things that are a lot cheaper, just be patient about rushing back in and, and picking up things you think are going to be cheap. And just really ask yourself the question, are they cheap enough? And Kerry, uh, one final question uh, as we wrap up. Uh, you know, Bryce and I are long-term investors here and um, there's a lot of reasons to be concerned in the short term, but I guess time and time again, the stock market, asset class, a lot of asset classes in general climb that wall of worry. So uh, final question, 
will the Australian stock market be higher in 20 years than it is today? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can see how you, it, I, I did paint a rather uh, dour picture of the world. I mean, <laughs> it, it is a case of thinking about... Uh, you know the roller coaster that it has been on the course of this year. That you know it does feel like we're on one of those those downward spirals in a roller coaster. But you know on the other side of that you get the ups, right? Um, and I think that's one of the other things that investors should really think about right now is that so many of the conversations I have are around like, oh, should I have more bonds? Are the yields going to go higher? Should I just have lots of cash at the moment? Um, and you know, surely you can do that. You can hold lots of cash and be defensive. That's not going to help you, you know, consume more in the future, as you put it. You know, <laughs> it's not going to help you achieve your investment goals in the long run. And I think it really does come back to thinking about we do know there's going to be eventually an upside. How do you sequence back into risk? How do you start looking at these markets that have got cheaper and have that plan in place now? Think about when you're going to start. Is it going to be credit? You're going to move back into high yield. Is it going to be those growthier parts of the market that do have those better earnings? Because it feeds into all those secular trends that don't really relate to the cycle. You know, you can think about robotics, AI, cloud computing, um, the fact that, you know, we have all these digital transformations that affect us every day in our life and we adopt technology so much faster than we have in the past. All those things are going to continue to play out over the next 10 or 20 years. They provide opportunities. And then as we talked about earlier, obviously you've got the whole story around new renewables, the massive amount of investments there. Those secular themes are still very present. Uh, and as those companies become cheaper, you can start thinking about are they going to be an allocation and your time horizon matters there because you realize you might, maybe they're going to slip in the next few months, but they're going to pay off in the long run. So it's a good time to again approach those secular themes that you might think about in your portfolio that you want to achieve and think about those long run goals because valuations matters so much in equities so if you pay something for the stock market now say seven times times forward earnings on a PE uh, over one year it doesn't matter because it's the cash flows the companies it's the earnings that matter over five years ten years it matters if you pay 14 times PE you're going to get a much bigger return and it's the same in the bond market you know if you're buying a bond that has a yield of one percent your return is pitiful if you're buying a yield that has a bond that has a yield of four percent your returns will be much much better in the long run so those prices uh, are really much something that for the long-term investor has become much more attractive and again we publish something called our long-term capital markets, which is asset returns over the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, we cut those off every year at the 30th of September. It's our start point. Because of where markets are at the 30th of September this year, I mean, it's going to have a pretty positive impact on what we think those returns are going to deliver over the coming decades. Well, nice. Have to yeah. get our hands on that report. Is, well, that, is that public? Yeah, we publish it every year. It's uh, going to come out on uh, here in Australia on the 7th of November, and we'll be doing a release uh, late but it's, it's the long-term view of markets, but it has some great thematics in there as well that we look at. So not only do we go through all the different asset classes and what's affecting them, so equities, bonds, uh, private markets as well, thinking about alternatives, um, it's also a macro view in the long run, and we build in some thematics around what's changing. So deglobalization is going to be a big one that affects it, moving towards a 10 billion uh, population planet, um, thinking about just active versus passive and what that, that means. I mean, there's a big case for being much more active these days. So, uh, yeah, there's some really good thematics about what we think is going to affect impact markets. Well, I feel Love like that. I feel like we're going to be getting you back on at some point to talk about that, and <laughs> yeah, we'll sure. juxtapose the uh, the you know not the negativity but the the risk of the moment with the the hopefulness yeah. of the 10, 10 20 year outlook. So I mean, it's a mess. There's a big opportunity being created, especially in the bond market uh, in more recent times, and I think 
that time horizon is so important for thinking about your allocation right now. Because personally, I, I have an allocation where I don't look at what I own on a daily basis. So yeah. I just have that horizon that says I'm going to worry about that in five years or if it's investing my kids, I'll worry about when 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that horizon is, is hugely important when we look at how markets are behaving lately. Yeah. Well, well Kerry, we definitely will have you back on, that is for sure. Um, and we love uh, you coming in and helping us unpack all that's going on at a macro level. It's uh, fascinating chatting with you. So thank you to JP Morgan Asset Management for supporting the episode as well and we very much look forward to uh, catching up again so thank you very much thanks very much for having me in thanks Karen. equity mates investing podcast is a product of equity mates media all information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only equity mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals it is not intended as a substitute for professional finance legal or tax advice The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website, where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 